Hey, good evening, you guys. Welcome to church. Are you happy? Yeah? Look at this weather, right? I started out today. I had a sweatshirt on before I left the house thinking it would be a little chilly, and I was about to call the whole thing off because I don't do cold well. But look at us now. It is, it is really, I'm feeling really happy right now, you guys. I, I don't know the totality of what's going to come out in this sermon, but I'm just in a good place. Honestly, I'll say this. I'm in a grateful place because, you know, one of the things we've decided as a team at the table is that if there are family events or things going on that are more important than religious services, prioritize that, be there. And so my, my team here, we decided that I could go and be with my kid as he had his first game from Minneapolis United today at 4 p.m. I thought there'd be an eruption. There's not. That's fine. Um, before, though, I went to his game at 4 o'clock. It's 5 o'clock right now, 5 o'clock and some change. There's no point to this except I'm on a break. And um, the game got started a little bit late, and so I didn't get to be there very long. But as I was walking out like 10, 5 minutes into the game, I'm heading to my car, and Wyatt, my son, takes the ball from some kid from Wright County some kid who had no business being on Minneapolis United's field, and he has a breakaway and scores the first goal of the season. Can I get an amen? Well, that's all we have for you tonight. <laughs> Thank you for coming so much. Appreciate it. It is, um, it is good, though, to be here. It is good to recognize that we are still here. Even for us as a church, you know, I mean, this is, I guess, what we would call, like, the first night of, what, our fifth season Right, Maggie? I'm looking at you. You know these sorts of things. Fourth or fifth season. We don't have like that, that new church um, smell, that new church sex appeal that we once had. But even with the appeal now absent, we're still here. We're still small, but we're still here. We're still pretty disorganized. Um, you know, we're still putting up bouncy houses on lawn, even though the clear instructions that we'd put them on the parking lot. But we're still... Here, we're still doing, that's not a small thing. I, I think I talked about this months ago, but when you consider the lay of the land where we are in society, in our own lives, with all that we're going up against as a people right now, the fact that we are still here, still standing, the only proper response is gratitude. And to savor the gift that is life and to relish the fact that we are still here. And so we're going to do that tonight. If this thing gets too windy and chaotic, I'll, I'll move to the handheld. But we are going to do that tonight. We are going to um, eat good food, and we're going to make each other laugh, and our kids are going to be in the bounty houses all the way to bedtime, and we will celebrate the fact that we are still here. But that's not all that we're going to do. Because as much as it is important that we pause to, to savor and celebrate the fact that we are still here, on this first night of the year, we also get that chance to recommit ourselves to the work of understanding why that even matters. Like, why does it matter that this church is still standing? What's so good about this church? Why is it important that it is insisting on existing? I know I just talked about this, but it is important that we kind of linger around this a little bit more when we ask the question, what would the city lose if we suddenly got lost? If we weren't here anymore? Again, kind of cringy. And I know we're in a, a festive moment right now, and heaven forbid I spoil that, but Minneapolis, our city, this place where our church is, it, it doesn't need more churches whose aim is merely to exist. Minneapolis needs more churches who exist to help us with our aim. 
We need churches who push for something good in the midst of all that is pulling us into what's bad. We need churches who have a very localized theology that is allergic to the abstract and insistent about particulars. That actually gets into the real things. Where flesh and blood and bills and deadlines all meet. Churches who are out there on the front lines. Protecting renters from exploitative landlords who ensure that no more kids in our city are going to get shot who are calling on the state to divest from fossil fuels, who prioritize the needs of the many over the wants of the few. We need churches who can look one another in the eye and say with complete sincerity that you are seen, you are safe, you are celebrated, you are loved, you are wanted, you are enough. And it wouldn't be the same without you here. We will not let you go at this life alone. For churches today in a city like ours, when we consider why it's good news that we still are standing, our answer can't be because we should still be standing. Our aim is not just to be an existing church, it's to embody something that is actually edifying for all. And that starts in this space here. You know, sometimes I think when we talk about Minneapolis, we talk about the state, or we talk about society, we, we're talking as if that place is not in this room. That place is in this room. Minneapolis is not outside. You are this city. You are this state. You are the people that have been placed in this time for a very specific purpose. What is that purpose? To love your neighbor very, very well. To do it consistently with sincerity. And it's important that we receive that reality before we have the audacity to believe that we can invite other people into it. And so every week we gather here in this little learning lab where we learn what does it look like to love our neighbors? What does it look like to love ourselves? What does it look like to be healthy and whole? In hopes that it's going to spill over into how we lead other people into that very thing. But we can't tell anybody that they are the beloved of God if we are still confused about that matter for ourselves. We have to name who we are. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, not tonight, but over the next couple of months, you know, we're not big on sermon series here at the table. You might have noticed that. I think there's a collective cringe that happens whenever churches try to get to marketing with anything. Um, so we've kind of sidestepped them, but not this fall. For the next couple of months, we're going to be going into a sermon series called This Is Us. We're going to identify um, the practices and rhythms that this community orients itself around. And so the purpose is simple and it's pretty straightforward, but when you say you are a part of the table and somebody comes up to you and says, like, what does that mean? We want to be able to equip you with an adequate answer. We want to be able to tell you that, that we want you to be able to tell that person who's coming your way that you are somebody who is rooting your story in the son of love, which means that you are somebody who is committed to radical inclusivity to justice as love in the public, to remain culturally engaged and never apathetically withdrawn, politically involved without the partisan power plays, and that you take on these commitments inside of the context of a compassionate community where you are unapologetically human alongside of other people who are choosing to be brave enough to do so for themselves. When I say that I'm a part of the table, that's what I mean. And so for the next few months, we want to focus on that. We want to focus on um, that in this space as we gather together as a people, as we gather around the bread and the wine, as we remember who we are, because we are the table, a community whose name is derived from the holiest piece of furniture that you can find in the kingdom of God. The table, since the very start of time, has always been the place where holiness and humanity collide, where the bread turns into the body, where the wine turns into the blood. 
Life emerges in new ways here at the table. It's why uh, Ronald Reagan himself once said that all great changes in America, they begin at the dinner table. I think he's right. I think he's actually right about that because it's at the table where we actually connect for the very first time. It's at the table where life slows down. It's at the table where we start to grow up. It's at the table where we lift our eyes from our phones. It's at the table where we pass the salt and keep our traditions. It's at the table where we are together. I mean, we break bread at the table. We break the news at the table. It's at the table where we look at one another and we say, like, how... How are you doing? Which is just another way of saying, what's it like being you right now in this time? I know from my limited view from a point that I know what it's like to be me, but I have no idea what it's like to be you, and I'm dying to find out. We find out at the table. There's something really special and beautiful that happens around a dinner table, breakfast table, even a lunch table, because immediately life ceases from running on default and something wholly emerges. I think that's actually why Jesus himself was always at a table. You know, Jesus in his ministry, is this too much, Meg? You'll flag me down, right? Is this thing on? Kenny? Am I good? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? No? Am I making it more awkward? Okay, we're good. Awesome. Jesus himself was always at a dinner table, always at somebody's table, so much so that the critics in the stands who were watching his life unfold, they considered him to be so often at a table that surely he must be a drunk. Surely he must be a binge eater. Surely he is a reckless socializer. And yet Jesus still sat at the tables. Because in many ways, Jesus himself, he was the table. He was always the place where holiness and humanity came to collide, where the blood and the body met as one. You know, when the earliest Christian writers sought to speak about Jesus, they called him the bright and morning star. They said that he came to us from heavens above, and yet somehow he also came from with us below. Born of water, born of spirit, born of the visible, born of the invisible. A sacred mix of two atoms scooped up from the dust of the earth and gathered as the substance of the stars in the frame of a human to serve as the place where reconciliation happens. To be the tabled person. This was Jesus, the parable of God's love for a world as it is, not withheld for the world as it should be. And if you recall the story of Jesus's life when his days are coming to an end, on the evening before his execution, while the Roman paddy wagon was being prepped to take him away, this morning star, this celestial light, he gathered with his closest friends at a table. He gathered with his people one more time for one more meal. And as the meal wound down and the Passover movement started to still, his friends started to watch their leader stand up from the middle of the table and reach for the bread that was sitting at the center. And he lifted the bread into his hands. And I, I always wonder, like, what were the questions that were being lifted inside of them when he did that? Is, is he going to say something about the Passover? Is he going to give some, like, commentary here? Is he going to comment on how good the bread was tonight? What is he going to do next? Is he going to pull off one of the tricks like he did back in the hills? But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, the light of the world lifts the bread... He looks at the bread, and then he looks at his people, and he said, even morning stars can be dimmed. Even those who are built by the breath of God can be strangled out by the hands of life. Even the loved get lost. Even the favored 
They get found at some point to be fragile. You see, I don't know for sure when Jesus knew for sure that his time was up, but he did know there. And in that moment, he could have kept it to himself, but he takes all of the heaviness that he's holding within and he puts it right there on the center of the table because that's what we do with the table. That's what we do with the table. We might be able to outrun life everywhere else, but here we can't outsprint the heavy. Here we say that this is that, that we, we, we put ourselves out there, our angst, our addictions, our demons, the things that haunt us, the things that keep us up at night, our fears about our kids going to school, our fears about when our kids come home from school, all the things that we are carrying, we set them here in the context community at the center of the table in hopes that we will hear from somebody next to us, you're not alone. It's hard. It's heavy. It's not fun. We're all tired but you're not alone. You do not go at this alone. And I know that's basic, but it's so beautiful to see somebody who is standing in their pain and see somebody else refuse to let them stand alone is one of the most sacred things you will ever see. To see somebody have the courage to say, this is my real, and to see other people rush next to them to say, and you won't go at it alone. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. I think this is why, you know, did anybody see uh, Ted Lasso the other night? And he, Jerome, that's why we started weeping when Roy Kent wrapped his arms around Jamie Tarp. We, we had no other choice. This is why when our kids are going off to school, we insist if you see somebody sitting at a table alone, do not let them sit alone. Do not let them sit alone. You don't have to sit alone. At the table, you bring it out. There is something holy. There is something beyond articulation's reach when we come to terms with our own humanity and find holiness within. You know, we say that we are people who are centered on the son of love, that we are formed by the Christ. And one of the most potent images of that formation is when we find Jesus on the cross in his final moments. And we hear the water of life reach out for help. And he says, I'm thirsty. It's the first time we recognize that we no longer pretend like we are like somehow we can get by without others holding our hands and healing our hearts, like we're above all the fear and anxiety and the insecurities of the world, like we can take on the world with no table to set our own worlds down at. Can't do it. Won't be done. The tabled one calls us to be a tabled people, free enough to be fragile and exposed, because that's where the holy and the human collide. Of course, that's not, you know, all that happens at the table. It's not the total story of what we do here at the table. We don't just fall apart in this space. We also come together to be put back together. If you remember the gospel story in the life of Jesus Christ, you'll remember that shortly after this, the Romans did come. Judas did put a knife in his back, and things got dark very quickly. Jesus dies. Jesus is buried. But our tradition says that on the third day, Jesus got back up. Jesus was killed but Jesus got back up. And one of the most, um, oh, I hope this is okay to say, one of the most hilarious lines that's in the Gospels is after Jesus gets back up and after Jesus sees the people who are coming to his side, he says, not anything like profound. He doesn't start pontificating about like, here's what I saw on the other side of death and here's what you need to know. He says, does anybody have a bite to eat? <laughs> like apparently resurrection just kind of, it really is an appetite driver. Does anybody have 
Any kind of snacks? You, sir, any snacks? I'm so hungry right now. What's he saying? Could somebody take me back to the table? Could you participate in my own story as I put myself back together again? You, you were by my side a couple nights ago when everything was getting dark, and I need you by my side right now if I can make it back to the light. Will you be the one who helps my star shine again? Will you be the one who helps put me back together again? Will you help return me to my own humanity so that I can find that that is where our holiness has always been? The table is the place where we are real. The table is the place where we make returns. The table is the place where we experience in not abstract ways, but embodied ways that love really does lead us back to life. In Jesus, God's secret about the table is finally being screamed for all the world to hear. But the whisper has always been there. You know, I've been struck by this um, text in Proverbs as of late, and I'll, I'll close real soon because I know we got food we want to eat and bouncy else we want to jump in. I really hope LFA shows up here soon so my anxiety can tone down. Maggie, if they don't come, will you start cooking something real quick? Thank you. But there's this moment where if you study the scriptures and you study the background of, of Proverbs, there is a group of wise elders who lived in Jerusalem, and they would watch the flow in and out of their city gates. And as they listened to the daily petty disputes among the people, the, the things that were bothering people, the fights that were being picked, all the different pieces that go inside of what it means to be human. As they listened to that while simultaneously considering their own experience as part of the panorama of life, they coined this wise proverb that we carry with us still to this day. It's in Proverbs 15, 17, and it says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. They recognize what we recognize. They recognize what we are talking about tonight. They recognize that even if there are only a few herbs on the table, if you got love, you're going to walk away full. Might be small, might be disorganized, might be messy, might be chaotic, might not always be your cup of tea, but if you come to the table and you find love sitting at the center, you'll walk away full. May we be a people who insist upon being the people that we have been called to be. May we be a people who are following the tabled one into tables all around us. Might, have, might not have much to bring, but people will walk away full. People will walk away better. You know, I tried to um, talk to my kids yesterday um, about 9-11, and that's not an easy thing to do. But I was telling my son Sawyer, who just turned six, just had his first week at kindergarten, kind of an elementary version of what went down that day and why it went down. And Sawyer asked me from the backseat, he goes, Dad, don't, don't all people come from God? And I said, yeah, they do. We all come from God. And Sawyer goes, so doesn't that mean that we're all family? And I said, yeah, we're all family. And Sawyer goes, I think it's so stupid when family hurts family. From the mouths of babies, we remember that we're all family. And so let's set these tables together. Amen? Jesus, you are the tabled one, calling us to be a tabled people. God, we gather to honor that calling. 
not just to pontificate about it, God, but to practice it in our lives, to ensure that nobody walks their days alone, nobody carries their burdens alone, that we are here to hold the heavy and walk people back to life. We love you. We are loved by you. We are grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was thinking while Matt was talking about how many conversations I've had with people sitting out here and with our table team and Matt and I and Christian and Maggie and Patty and, and just how many conversations we had about uh, what does it mean to be the church? Does church matter anymore? Does any of this matter? And even in some of the most discouraging moments of the big C and the little C, we always come back to it matters. It matters. And I think what I love the most about Matt's message tonight was the truth that it is coming to the table with all our mess, with all our brokenness, with all our fear and uncertainty, with all the joy and doing it together. And I love the beauty of that. When we connect, we connect with God. And when we connect with God, we connect with one another. And this table is the place where humanity meets divinity. The divine meets the human. And it's in that moment we remember what matters and it's something bigger than us, something beyond us. And we're reminded over and over again that we are the beloved children of God, every single human being on this earth. On the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took a cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So that's what we do at this time. If you can grab your communion elements, your own table, you can pull that top back and get the wafer and get the juice. And as you take that bread, you remember that you are the beloved of God, the body of Christ broken for you. And when you take from that cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. You are the beloved of God. So together, let's stand and pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved. 
you always belong.